Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 18, and the sermon title is The Brevity of Life and the Dominion of Christ. We hope you are blessed by the message today. It'll be a little bit more on a personal level. Uh, This text today doesn't really take us into much prophecy, thinking about the future events or anything like that, or past events in that that regard in terms of eschatology. But this is going to be much more applicable to our hearts. And this morning, we're thinking about the brevity of life and the eternality of Christ's kingdom. That's really the ultimate aim of what we're looking at, the brevity of our life, the brevity of life itself, and the eternality of Christ's kingdom. Let me start with just James chapter 4, verse 4. It'll be on the screen. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So the question is before us, what is your life? What is your life? What does it consist of? What is it for? Why are you here? Why are you living each day? What is it for? Where is your focus? And so that's a good question to ask. Ultimately, what is success? What is safety? And what is security? When we think of our lives, even today, I think that's the majority of us are thinking this way. What does it mean to be successful? How do we keep ourselves safe? And what is security? Most of us, and now in context with, and you can probably see already where this is going in context of King Nebuchadnezzar, and we, tro- we chose to break this down and to not do all of chapter 4, although it could have all been done together. But we really wanted to take a look at this section and li- li- use this as an opportunity to look at this particular topic. And most of us, most of you have experienced what it's like to go from peace to trouble, from ease to difficulty, in some form or fashion. You look over your life, Think of the history, things you've gone through and where you've had a moment of peace or a time or a season of ease and then it was gone. Something happened. Something changed. And if you have, which most of us have, then you probably know that this is sometimes either self-inflicted, those choices that you've made or something that you've done caused you to go from peace or ease to then difficulty and trial and trouble. And those are oftentimes or can be self-inflicted consequences of our own choices. But other times, it's God's way of teaching us through adversity to trust in Him. He takes away the time of peace. And He takes away the time of ease and gives a time of trouble and uncertainty so where the church is then trusting in Him in a way that they weren't before and seeking Him and clinging to Him and desperate for Him. And so in this text this morning, the king of Babylon, what did he experience? He experienced the former. Because of his life and because of his choices and because of who he is, he experiences that first example. And most of you won't experience what he did to the level that he did unless you're moonlighting as a pagan king or queen. You should be okay at this level. But there are cases, just so you know, and this is just on the interesting level, there are cases of Insanity to the point that King Nebuchadnezzar went to. You can find them recorded at various places around the world in 
take or leave this trivia, but his acting as though he is a beast seems to be the origination of where the myth of the werewolf comes from. A man acting as though he's a beast and actually convinced that he is a beast. King Nebuchadnezzar went to the place to where he was eating grass outside like a wild animal. So I hope that your peace and safety doesn't get stripped to that point to where you are driven to insanity. But that is what happened with the king here. And so that's the scenario that we're looking at. But as we look at what God does with King Nebuchadnezzar, and we see once again, as a comparison, Daniel's life and his faithfulness, we're again, we're drawn in to see Christ. We're drawn in to see the way of God and that his will is perfect. And that his will for us is peace. Peaceful, ultimate, in an ultimate sense. So, looking at the text, let's just draw out a few contextual details, and then we're going to get to the main part of the the sermon, which, again, is talking about the brevity of life and the eternal nature of the kingdom. But for the context's sake, there in chapter 4, verse 1, we're looking at probably 30 to 35 years, most scholars believe, since chapter 3. Placing Daniel probably in his mid-50s or 50s range and Nebuchadnezzar much closer to the end of his life. After this scenario goes down, there's not much time and then Nebuchadnezzar's off the scene. Now obviously we can't know exactly their age, but this is again, most scholars believe this is somewhat in that time frame. And why does that matter? Man, because Daniel, 35 years after this last scene that we've read, he's still serving the king. And he's still in a place of, of authority. And he's still serving God with all his heart. And he's still being called on as the one in whom the Spirit of the Lord dwells. 35 years later. That's significant. And you know how hard it is to maintain faithfulness to God. And how that can be a burden. We have an example here of a man of God and men of God that we've been looking at. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and also then Belteshazzar or Daniel. That they are in a a predicament that none of us have ever faced and probably never will to that extreme. And yet they are remaining faithful to God and they're serving him in that circumstance. Even under such an evil rule. So verse 1 to 3 Let's look at this. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So these three verses almost sounds more like an epistle than an Old Old Testament narrative. He's opening this up as like, a, it's a letter. It's, it's, he's, he's declaring this to the kingdom. He wants the, the nation, the entire world, the known world to know. And Daniel writes from the perspective of the king. Again, we believe Daniel wrote this whole book, though it seems that the, the viewpoints change. It's, it's hard to believe that Nebuchadnezzar could write his own account knowing the insanity that he, that he faces. He would not be able to recall that with that kind of clarity. It would have to have been an outside perspective. So Daniel is writing from the account of the king or from the perspective of the king. But look at what it says. Let's just look at this for a moment. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, languages, he's flexing his dominion a little bit here, isn't he? 
This is a letter to all peoples, all nations and languages that dwell on the earth. Earth, Peace be multiplied to you. And then he says, it seems good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. That seems a little peculiar for a pagan king. I'm grateful that this is here. Um, the, the jury is still out on whether, on what I really do believe and think about the ultimate destination of King Nebuchadnezzar. I've, I, I, I probably spoke too soon a few sermons ago when I said, no, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. But here's, I'd rather say we just don't know. Because there is some incredible evidence in, in, in these couple chapters that do show God working in this man's life and things that he's saying, but, but I will not say that Nebuchadnezzar ultimately came to know the God of the Bible. I don't know. I'll leave that. You guys can have your own opinions on that. That's fine. But he wants to show and tell of all the signs that God has done in his life. This most high God, what he's done for me, he says. So he has this ability to speak to the entire known world. And what he's doing is declaring that he desires to tell the world what God has done for him, including the account that we're reading in this chapter. So not only in this chapter, but I think King Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I want you guys to know what God has done from the point that I kidnapped these young Jewish boys and took them from their homes. God has done incredible things to show his strength and his power. And God has absolutely shown him great mercy and patience. We know King Nebuchadnezzar. We know some things about his personality and who he is and about his philosophy behind kingship and rulership. Again, he kidnapped children from Judah, indoctrinated them, has attempted to cause them great suffering, all while calling the entire world to bow down to false idols. And yet, here he stands at the beginning of chapter 4 in great prosperity. Why? Because God has allowed it. And God has been merciful to him. That's only because of the mercy of God, not because of the deserving nature of King Nebuchadnezzar. But God has allowed it. But really, he does lay down some incredible truths about God here in this opening line. We begin to even wonder if he's having a change of heart. Look at it again. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's what the king says. How great are his signs. Then he acknowledges this eternal nature of God's kingdom. He says he rules over every generation. And that's true. That's true. Even that little bit of information... Brothers and sisters, I think it's something that we can cling to today. Just hold on to that. That he rules over every generation. From generation to generation, he has dominion. Over this generation, and the next, and the last one. Every generation. And a pagan king, he gets it. You see what I'm saying? I'm trying to paint a picture that if he gets this, if King Nebuchadnezzar understands this, we should understand this. The, the evidence is overwhelming. The, the complete nature now of the scriptures and all that we have that we know about Christ and his rule and what he's done to secure for us a kingdom and eternal life. It's incredible, but we doubt, don't we? We doubt whether he rules 
the last generation or this or if he's going to rule next generation. But he, but he has dominion. He's sovereign. And I do think that if a pagan king can realize this and proclaim this, not only just realize it, but proclaim it. He wants the whole world to know what God has done in his life. And he's telling all nations, languages, and tongues, he rules every generation. I think that we should be able to do so even more. Don't you believe that? If, if King Nebuchadnezzar can say with that sort of confidence and authority that we, the church of God, under the authority of Christ, could say God rules every generation and has dominion and through Christ has bought for himself a people for that kingdom that now get to be included in that dominion and rule and authority. Jesus did say, after all, didn't he? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go, therefore, and preach the gospel. That dominion, he shares it with us for a purpose. And the purpose in every generation is always the proclamation of that kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom to bring in more, to bring in more into that eternal kingdom that they might be saved and forgiven of sin and turned away from darkness. That is the mission, and that continues to be. So we see this in Scripture often, this scenario of a pagan king and God using vessels of sin to display his power. Because it could get to the point where you say, well, why king? Why is Nebuchadnezzar here prospering? And, you know, it tells us. I, verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Why him? I mean, what a wicked guy. And I'm not talking like a manor. I mean, actually wicked. Evil. The things that he's done. But God has been merciful. And he's there at ease in his palace. But God does use, ultimately, vessels for his own purposes. And he chooses how to use them. I think of Pharaoh here, maybe in your mind you're drawn to that scenario as well, that as Israel was held captive in Egypt, enslaved and abused, God sent a rescuer into that situation with a message. The message was, let my people go. The messenger was Moses and Aaron. And when he would not, what did God do? He displayed his power. He displayed his power. And he was glorified in the destruction of that earthly king. That king, he did not spare. He did not bless him. At that point, he displayed his power in those ten plagues. Romans 9, 12, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory? See what's happening here? In order to make known his glorious riches, he will often at times take a vessel and show his power so that the entire world sees, I'm in charge. I have dominion. I have authority which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. How is this important for us? How is this a necessary truth for us to understand? Why? Because we often, and maybe are doing this today, we often dismiss opposition from evil as anything that God can use for good, when in fact God is still interested in showing his power on behalf of his people today. He's still interested in doing that. And I believe that we need to believe that. 
We need to believe that and trust that. So as we think that we are being overwhelmed by darkness and that God elevates and allows people to do things and make decisions and put them into positions to do sometimes the most atrocious things, that God at the right time and in the right way will display his power for the whole world to see. He's done it through history. We believe God because of his word. We believe that he is who he says he is and he never changes. We believe that the end result of human history is only going to play out the way God says it's going to play out. So we can trust him. I think this scenario of Nebuchadnezzar is, in one way, it's going to be very personal in how we interpret this and how we apply this. But in the bigger picture, God is doing something in the midst of Babylon, there with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and all of those Jewish boys there watching, and God is going to display his power. One thing we learn from the text that we're in and from Daniel as a whole is that whether or not God delivers his people physically in this life or not, or in the moment that you ask for it, we can be sure that the way for us to live now is humbly and submissively to the will of God. Whether he delivers you from the physical thing that's facing you now, or he does it in the moment that you ask him, it's always the will of God to live humbly and submissively to the will and the purpose of God. And we know this as we read his word. It's all it needs to be the ultimate compass to how we live. The thing that gives us the trajectory for every day of our life, no matter what's happening in the world around us. No matter how close the calamity and the hardship gets. And how do we know that that's the case? Because the people that wrote the Bible did not write it from easy circumstances. They lived through tyranny and opposition and war and deep, deep hardship. And yet they, we have the proclamation of a kingdom and a powerful message that overtakes the whole world and overtakes people's hearts. And people praising God in the midst of hardship. You could say that the Bible was written out of hardship. That's why it's so relatable to us. That's why we can read it and we understand, wow, this is really not too much different than our lives and our time right now. Those who do submit to the will of God ultimately prosper. Ultimately prosper. Whether you prosper in an earthly sense here or not, that really doesn't matter as much as the ultimate sense of the word that you will prosper as God's child, as his son or daughter. That you will prosper in eternal ways. That you will prosper as a worshiper of God, forgiven of your sin, power over your sin. That you can live with freedom. That's prosperity. Freedom from sin. Freedom to worship God. And I don't mean in a political sense. I mean, he's given you the freedom to worship him and no longer be subject to your sin and be ruled by your sin. Those who ultimately do submit and humble themselves to the will of God, they ultimately prosper. Those who don't will, in the end, lose all of their earthly riches under the hand of God's judgment. All of it will be gone. And then then there's eternity apart from God. Now, similar to the previous scenarios, Daniel, in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar finds no help from the world. And we see in verse 8, it's a really interesting, uh, I love it how he kind of comes on the scene. He calls for all the magicians first, and then in verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me, and then he's suddenly there. So all the other guys showed up first, 
And where's Daniel? We know he's kind of at the top of the list when it comes to people that Nebuchadnezzar would lean on. But everybody else comes first. Daniel's busy doing something. Maybe he hears, hears about it and he's like, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to show up first. I'm going to let these guys, I'm going to let these buffoons show that they have no power. And then I'll come in. And then I'll, you should have you called on me first, Nebuchadnezzar. But he shows up. At last, Daniel was before him. And he tells him the dream. And as you scan back down through with your eyes, this the basic sense of the dream is this. There's a vast and fruitful tree in the midst of the earth. It grew to have influence over the entire earth and to even have food for all. It was a provision. It was, there was something seen in this dream that shows that from this tree there would be provision for all. All manner of people were dependent upon that tree's wealth and fruitfulness. And for the purpose of this, this sermon, and because we haven't gone past verse 19, I'm going to jump ahead a bit to the interpretation just slightly and just say that this tree represents Nebuchadnezzar's rule and Babylon's influence. That's the interpretation that comes later. Verse 13, it pivots to the second, almost part two of the dream. And this is probably what terrified the king because it says that as he laid on his bed in verse 4, verse 5, I saw the dream that made me afraid. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the world, the most powerful man in the world, is again afraid of a dream. He's afraid. God has said something to him. Something's happening and he is terrified. This is probably the part that terrified him. A messenger... I think we could say this is most likely a holy angel, a watcher, is what the scripture calls it. And we have other places in scripture, like in Ezekiel, that says that the angels are described as having eyes all around them. They see. They can see. They see it all, which is really cool. But this holy angel, a watcher, came from heaven with a decree. What was the decree? Chop the tree down. I think that's when Nebuchadnezzar probably freaked out a little bit. Chop the tree down, lop off its branches, strip its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Take its power and influence over the world, but leave the stump and protect it with bronze and iron. That's an act of mercy. Even in God proclaiming that he's going to bring an end to Nebuchadnezzar's rule for a time, and he's going to actually end his own sanity, he's saying, I'm going to leave enough there to work with. I'm not going to completely destroy him. And I'm going to protect that and I'm going to do something with it later. And that's mercy. And then we see the language shift from it to him in the dream. The dream is no longer talking about an it, a tree, but him. The watcher brings a decree that Nebuchadnezzar will be humiliated and given a mind of insanity as a disease. I think this is to be interpreted. God gave him a disease that so his life and his body and his mind that he was given the mind of a beast. He's to be stripped of the mind of a man and given the mind of a beast. That's just incredible to think of. We value sane thinking, don't we? Right? Just wake up like, just give me a clear thought, God. Help me to think. I mean, we value this. The mind of a man was taken from him and God replaced it with the mind of a beast. He would be in this despicable place until, Scripture says, seven times pass over him. Some interpret this to just be a complete time that's not necessarily a known time. Others say, no, this is definitely saying a seven, seven periods or a year. Seven seasons, complete seasons that pass over him. Either way, enough time 
for this to set in and for the lesson to take place in Nebuchadnezzar and for him to be what? Utterly utterly humiliated to the point where he's eating grass like cattle outside. Verse 17 tells us that nothing could change this. This was a decree of God. Verse 17, the sentence, this sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Here we have the purpose. We can see that the purpose of this dream was one that God would show that he is the most high and that he rules and that he rules the kingdoms of men. We've said this several times, that every king on this earth ultimately actually has a king, whether they admit it or not, there's a king over every king, and that is the king of kings. It is Christ. It is Jesus. He ultimately rules. So what Nebuchadnezzar had in terms of success and wealth and worldly treasure was at risk of being gone in a moment. That's why I want to focus just on that. The, the, to be in that place where you have everything, you're at peace, you're at ease, and then in a moment it would be gone, gone like a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. Why? Because God gives and he takes away. Because God is the one who does that. Because the heart of the king, in this case, is like waters in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. Now look, don't go praying necessarily the mind of insanity upon kings and queens all over the world, right? Because that would be pretty cataclysmic if all of a sudden everybody was insane. Well, they are insane. But you know what I mean. But it is God who does this. It is God who steers the heart, who ultimately has control here. Nebuchadnezzar has lived a prideful and idolatrous life, which Scripture says is the very thing that precedes destruction. Now, here's where I want you to lock in your own life and think about this in terms of your, where does this need to apply to your heart? Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. These are principles that we just need to live by and understand and and hold on to and and know these lest we become prideful and cling to our own lives and think of ourselves as something more than we ought to. That's just wise. But there's an ultimate sense of this that we find in Scripture, and that is that the proud and boastful that are in this life, those that relish their self-sufficiency that hold on to their self-sufficient life without God. I don't need God. I'm okay without God. Those who do that and stay there and never turn from that pride to trust in Christ, they will be brought to utter destruction and ruin at the judgment of God and ultimately in the flames of hell. That is the ultimate end of a prideful person who does not repent of that pride and turn to trust in Christ, humbly trust in Christ. I think we can say that if you are somebody who does not trust in Christ, it is ultimately, at the end of the day, a pride thing. It's to say, I have what I need. I'm enough. I don't need God. And so there somebody stands at the brink of a relationship with Christ and just does not go 
and does not make that decision and does not turn and does not repent, it's pride. So if that's you this morning, if you have that sense that I can do this on my own, then you're, you're in the sin of pride and you need to turn from that. And we see mercy is given here. And though we see mercy given in our life, and then there's sometimes second, third, fourth chances that you guys have all experienced, I'm sure. Multiple chances that God has given over and over again. Mercy because he's merciful and he's patient. We even see circumstances like Nebuchadnezzar's that get turned from peace to insanity, but you read on further, and he's brought back out of that insanity again. Mercy. God had a lesson for him. He was teaching him something. I'm God, not you. So he returned. But in the ultimate sense, there will be no opportunity for repentance when this short life is over. There's no opportunity to turn. The gospel of Christ teaches us to renounce the pride of life and living for temporary things. To renounce those things. The gospel teaches us to treat life itself as brief, very momentary. And that does something with how we live our lives when we constantly remember that it's just a moment compared to eternity. It's very brief. And that it can be taken. It can be taken by God. And that we are not told to hold on to our lives as something that matters more than eternity with God. So don't hold on to your lives. I think there's a lot of temptation in our day to hold on to your life right now. Maybe you've maybe you faced that already. Maybe you're in the midst of that right now. Hold on to your life. Hold on to what you have for dear life. Hold on because hard times are coming. But however hard things get, we are never told to hold on to our lives. We're told to hold on to Christ. Hold on to God. Remember that our lives are brief. They are but for a moment. God can take them. He can do with them as he wishes. But he's a merciful, loving, faithful God that has given eternal life to his people. So how do you see your life at this time? Examine your heart. How do you see your life and the time that God has given you here? Nebuchadnezzar's dominion was vast and his power was great and his wealth was unfathomable but in a moment God will take it because it was not for God that he lived. God's going to take that away and that was a consequence of his life. But God has called each and every one of us to humility and to see our lives here as temporary. So that's the challenge. Again, the challenge is if you're not, if you have forgot to see your life, if you've forgotten to see your life as temporary, as brief, then there's a chance that other things are going to get out of whack and out of priority. And you'll stop thinking about the kingdom of Christ and you'll think about preserving the kingdoms of man and preserving your kingdom. We need to think constantly that this life is short and God will do with your life as he wills. Let's use this life humbly, submissively to him and to his will, keeping in mind that our life is a vapor. That's a fact. It's not going to change. Our life is a vapor and we have a greater kingdom to live for. And that we use this time not to store up momentary, temporary things, but to store up treasures in heaven. So here's a few scriptures to just help us think. The scriptures do teach this very soundly. James 1.11. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Job 14.1, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. How brief is life. Psalm 102.3, for my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. And there's many more, but lastly, Psalm 39.5, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all, mine, all mankind stands as a mere breath. That is humbling, guys. How can we hold on to those things? A breath, but dust, vapor, that's our life. Encouraging, huh? You're welcome. I really think, though, and believe because of Scripture, this has to be our mindset. It is the world who rejects the brevity of life and is simply looking to prolong this life when Scripture teaches the opposite. This life is brief. It's the eternal life that we live for. It's the kingdom of Christ that we live for. And remember that it is his kingdom that lasts forever. Later in Daniel, this becomes even more clear. Daniel 7, 14. You can flip over from your text in chapter 4. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. An incredible prophecy of Jesus himself. It says, And to him, speaking of Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in comparison to our lives that are brief, like a vapor, like a breath, here today, gone tomorrow, Christ's life is eternal, and he invites us into his eternal life, his eternal kingdom and home, that we get to live with him forever. And serve him forever. And have a dominion that is everlasting. And have a kingdom that will never pass away. That's the life we get. By being in Christ. By trusting in Christ. By humbly submitting to his will. So there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who live, whose life is their own. So examine your heart. Ask yourself, is my life my own? Do I own this life? Is it for me? The decisions I make, the way I pay, pay my bills, use my money, is it for me or am I living for an everlasting kingdom? So there's those who, whose life is their own, whose dominion and wealth and riches are perishable. Everything you have is one day going to be gone. It's going to be all gone. And then uh, on the other hand, there's those who by faith, I love how Scripture speaks of this, there are those that are hidden in Christ. You're hidden in Christ. And to be hidden in Christ is to be hidden in the one whose dominion is forever, whose kingdom never fades, and whose words remain forever and ever. So what is your life for? Who is it for? What kind of person are you? So here in this dream, we see this tree. It's a tree that bears fruit for a season, and then it's gone. Nebuchadnezzar's life was represented in that tree and he was freaked out out of his mind and he should have been. 
We're going to get to those in later sermons. We'll dive in further into that interpretation, and there will be other things that we learn from this. But I want you to hear this. There is another tree. I love the Scripture uses repetitive metaphors, and we get to compare all through Scripture. There's another tree. You guys probably already know it. There's a tree that bears fruit in every season. There's one that will never fade away, and one that will feed the nations forever and ever and ever. It's called the tree of life. That's in Scripture for us. And all who bow the knee to Christ here and turn from sin and trust in Christ, they get his life forever and what he supplies. And here's what it says in Revelation 22. If you want to flip over there, I'd love for your eyes to see it yourself. Be encouraged by this. If the previous 90% of this message has got you down, this will get you back up again. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer... Will there be anything accursed? But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign. How long? Forever and ever. This kingdom that is even being prophesied in Daniel, it's carried out through Christ. He came. He established it. We get to be a part of it. We will see His face one day. That's the kingdom that we live for. That's the reality that we live for. That's the reality that should consume our minds in this life right now. The temptation will be to be consumed by many, many other things, but don't let it be the case. At the beginning of our text, we were told that the king's dream came when he was at ease in his house and he was prospering In his place. And I do want to say this though there's nothing wrong with blessings and wealth that are earned honestly and used for good and used for God's glory, we are told as Christians not to live for ease and prosperity. Don't let that be the case. Don't let that be the reason why you make decisions. In fact, it is those earthly things that become the greatest distraction to the work of the gospel. And I would be willing to bet that if if you're somebody who has that natural proclivity to protect your life, you're probably somebody who is often distracted from the gospel and the mission of the kingdom. I think that what we need to see in this day that we live in is churches and believers in Christ that through adversity we keep a constant kingdom mindset. A mindset that says we live for eternity, not for here. We're not going to fear what man does to the body. We're going to cling to Christ and eternal things and we're going to proclaim the gospel until the day comes where he calls us home. Until the day comes where either our life ends here or let's say 
let's say Christ does return in our generation. We don't know. Personally, what do I believe? Should I tell you? <laughs> I think we need to prepare for multiple generations to come. I don't think we should live as though the world is going to end tomorrow. I think we need to live with our eyes set on Jesus and let him deal with the timing. Live your life, train your kids, love your spouses. Live for a kingdom that is eternal. Plant seeds here, be fruitful, multiply. That's still the command and the commission, is it not? To spread around this earth kingdom people. So don't be distracted by earthly things. Be vigilant, be diligent, be wise, right? I'm not saying don't prepare, but be wise about it. So church, we need to remember to intentionally see this life as brief, to see your days as numbered so that you stay alert, that you stay purposeful and diligent about the kingdom of Christ that lasts forever. This life is brief, and that's okay, because we have eternal life in Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Let's cling to these things. Let's pray, and we'll share communion together. Father, we desperately need your help, because it is not easy to think this way. As soon as we leave this building, God, we will be confronted with earthly things. We will be confronted with many, many temptations to cling to what we have, to cling to what we want, to make our lives more better, more secure. But if those things are distracting us from the gospel, from preaching, from proclaiming, if they're keeping us from a heart of peace and security in eternal things, God, bring us to repentance. Please, God, give this church and these people a clear understanding that this life is a vapor. And our days are numbered, but your kingdom never ends. Your kingdom never ends. We want to be a part of that kingdom. Thank you that we get to be because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That, that you came and you paid the price for us. For our sin, you died for us. You suffered incredibly on our behalf. You took upon yourself the wrath that we deserved for living for another kingdom. And by grace and mercy and through faith, we are adopted into a new family, a new home, a new kingdom. And we live for that kingdom now. Please, God, give us clear understanding of these things. I pray, God, for those that are really, really struggling with stress and anxiety. God, would you give them peace? Turn their eyes to heavenly things? Let us be wise as serpents here and harmless as doves here on this earth. And God, use us. Use us to keep spreading the, the gospel of the kingdom far and wide. Use us. Use people like us to bring the message of Jesus to those who need it. And we need your help for that, Lord. So we love you, God. We thank you how you have been so gracious to us today to give us your word. And we pray you hide it in our hearts, God. Strengthen us with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, or to find our gathering times and location, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.